Greetings. One must not get one's knickers in a twist. Hello and welcome to another episode of the History Emporium and Pals podcast. I'm Ollie Green. Now this week we're going to talk about slum clearances. Um, I do apologise that it has been a while since I have recorded an episode. There's been a lot going on um, with work and home life. So um, apologies about that, but I am here now. I remember having a conversation with a friend about the slum clearances in Glasgow. This was on the back of a huge relocation of locals after it was controversially decided to clear local communities to build the Athletes' Village when the Commonwealth Games came to town in 2014. So he brought it to my attention that communities are ever-changing and ever-adapting and that's been going on since day dot. Once one community is dispersed, then another one will regenerate and that's how new communities are created. So on the back of that conversation, it's inspired me to write this episode. If anyone has seen the TV show A House Through Time, you'll be well aware that an area and community can change in light of economic and environmental effects. In Georgian Britain, a huge new flow of cash was entering the country. This, as we know, was done on the back of exploiting other humans, not only in the UK, but as part of the shocking exploitation of people of colour. Britain had a very prominent hand within the slave trade, and as the exploitation grew, so did the wealth. With this newfound wealth, a huge housing programme and redevelopment of our towns and cities began. Two very famous Georgian new towns are in Bath and Edinburgh. These were grand buildings, usually with five or six floors for the wealthiest, mainly purchased by merchants to house their families. This was a new money society and these communities sprang up all over the UK, usually to the horror of the country estate owners who saw this new money as a threat to their way of living and ultimately they were right. So new houses and new wealth equals new communities. However, over time, as cities and towns grew and sprawled out ever further into the countryside, the popularity of districts changed. So let's say fictional Mr Green, a tobacco merchant, has brought a new property on the fashionable edge of town with a countryside view. This developed even more over time and now these country views had gone and the urbanisation had continued. The area was changing, so Mr Green moved out and began renting his home out to lodgers. This once grand house for one family and its staff could now accommodate 10 plus lodgers who could only afford to rent a room and were usually the lowest paid in society. This has now changed the dynamic of this community. Let's jump forward for a second. This can happen the other way round too. I would like to take an area of the UK I know very well, King's Cross in London, England. In the 1980s and the 1990s, King's Cross was usually the first part of London that most travellers would see due to its main railway terminal. In this time period, you would have been greeted with a very dirty, run-down area of London. It was unclean and unkept. 
This was not always the case, however, years of underfunding and underappreciation had made it less than a desirable place to be after dark. However, as a 21st century traveller, you will be blown away by the new redeveloping of the area. This has had a knock-on effect of those who once lived here in the 80s and 90s. They've now had to move on as a lot of properties were cleared and new communities were created, and so on and so forth. This does not mean that in the future the area will not be redeveloped again. At this point, I want to jump across the pond to New York City, in particular Manhattan. Manhattan is an urban sprawl with a gigantic park in the middle of it, Central Park. It looks like a great bit of planning, right? However, it was not always there. Communities lived on the land. Native Americans, African Americans and Irish communities all lived on this land. In the mid-19th century, New York decided it needed a park. The city was growing fast. By 1854, the city had chosen generous chunks of land in the centre of its island between what is now 59th and 106th Street and the construction on the park began. It was later extended four blocks further north. The park is still there today, and everyone loves it. I've been there, it's really nice. Despite centuries of urban development, the park has remained a beautiful chunk of green space among the ever-denser Manhattan streets. But there was another side to the story. By the time the decision to create the park was made, there just wasn't enough room left in Manhattan. So the city chose a stretch of land where the largest settlement was, called Senka Village, population 264, and they seized it under a new law through which the government can take private land for public purposes. Residents protested to the courts many times against both the order and the level of compensation they were being offered for their land. Eventually, though, all were forced to leave. Two-thirds of the population were black, the rest Irish. There were three churches and a school, and 50% of the heads of the households owned the land that they lived on, a fact conveniently ignored by the media at the time, who described the population as squatters and the settlement as nigger village. If you ever visit the park during their first 150 years of existence, you would literally have no idea that the village ever existed. It was only in 2001 that a small group called the Senka Village Project pursued the city to install a small plaque. It described the village as a unique community, which may well have been Manhattan's first prominent community of African-American property owners. Back to the UK. And now we enter Victorian Britain. The Industrial Revolution had changed the majority of the land-based jobs into city and town jobs. I use this term job loosely because the majority of regular folk did not get a fair wage and their quality of living was grim. With hundreds of common folk leaving the countryside behind in search for a better life, they moved into towns and cities in their droves. There was demand, but little supply. Workers' well-being wasn't top priority, and two or three families often had to share one room in an overcrowded house. 
there was usually only one bucket to go to the toilet and in some places, if there was plumbing, the toilet would have been outside and shared by an entire street. Let us fast forward again to the Interwar Housing and Planning Act 1919. Local councils were given subsidies from central government to build cheap rented houses. By 1922, 3,12,000 houses were built. Poor families, however, could not afford to pay the rents for these houses. Does that sound familiar? Councils were thus turned to the forefront of the providers and began to plan for their post-war housing programmes. Housing committees were set up working largely from recommendations from Central Government's Advisory Committee, the Tudor Walters Committee. They encouraged councils to build through the provision of general subsidies. Councils in the area of high housing need could apply for these subsidies. The London County Council also raised money through selling London housing bonds which promised investors a 6% return and raised 4 million during the 1920s. The largest council estate in the world was the massive Beacon Tree estate in Dagenham, built for returning soldiers and their family. Work by the London County Council on the estate started in 1921. Farms were compulsory purchased and by 1932 over 25,000 houses had been built and over 100,000 people had moved to the area. The new houses had gas and electricity, inside toilets, fitted baths and front and back gardens. London County Council also, however, had strict rules for the new tenants on housework and house improvement, garden maintenance, etc. Children's behaviour and keeping of pets. The estate was expanded over Essex parishes of Barking, Dagenham and Ilford with nearly 27,000 homes in total creating a virtual new town dwelling from over 30,000 families. The Chamberlain's Housing Act in 1923. Private builders were given subsidies to build houses. This helped people who could afford to buy their own homes. By 1929, 438,000 houses had been built. The poor, yet again, were not catered for, making them slaves to greedy landlords who milked a virtual monopoly situation. Moving on to the Wheatsley Housing Act in 1924. Central government gave subsidies to local councils to build houses. By 1933, 500,000 council houses were built. Poor families could not afford yet again to rent these houses either. The Greenwood Act in 1930. Central government gave grants to the local councils to demolish slum homes and rehouse all the people that have lived in them. By 1939, 245,000 slum houses had been demolished. Overcrowding and filthy slums remained a problem in Britain until the outbreak of World War II. By 1933, all authorities were required to concentrate efforts on the slum clearances. Each had to submit a programme of building and demolish aimed at eliminating slums for their district. The city of Bristol had calculated that they had 25,000 people living in houses unfit for human habitation and proceeded to replace only 5,000 of them. Fast forward a few years after World War II and the huge Nazi bombing campaign that destroyed a lot of communities and civilians. This had led to planners and governments to look into the future. 
many Georgian and Victorian houses were demolished because they were in such disrepair after years and years of neglect. It was cheaper to pull them down. Britain lost so much medieval, Tudor, Stuart, Georgian and Victorian architecture in these post-war years. As with World War I, there was a shortage of housing in Britain. And after World War II, thousands of houses had been destroyed by bombing. Slums remained a huge problem. The birth rate, as we know, climbed after the war ended and families required new homes. At the close of World War II, Britain had faced its worst housing shortage of the 20th century. It was estimated that 750,000 new homes were required in England and Wales in 1945 to provide all families with accommodation. Plans were then drawn up for a major rebuilding programme. The world population in 1945 was 2 billion. We think we had problems then. The world population, as in the 2018 census, was 7 billion. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, prefabricated homes, uh, flat pack homes, as you will. So, sections of houses were made in factories and were assembled on site. These houses were quick to erect and provided good facilities such as bathrooms, gardens, etc. These houses were meant to be temporary solutions to the problem of housing shortages, but many remained after 40 years, and many are still there to this day. The election of 1945 saw a new Labour government voted in and housing policy was central to the welfare reforms in the manifesto. The Minister of Health was responsible for the housing programme which focused heavily on local authority involvement rather than reliance of the private sector. Adding pressure on the government came in the form of soldiers returning from the war and the rising working class. Part of the initial response was the programme of short-term repairs to existing properties and the rapid construction of prefabs. Factory-built, single-storeys, temporary bungalows. These were highly controversial at the time. They were expected to last only for 10 years, but they proved very popular with some residents. There are still many lived in across the country, with 330 in use today in the city of Bristol alone, one of the largest concentrations of prefabs left in the country. Over the years, most prefabs have been demolished and replaced with permanent housing. Modern flat packs are permanent homes. The first prefabs were completed in June 1945, only weeks after the war had ended. Factories that had previously been employed to build other products such as airplanes were converted to build sections of the innovative new homes. It took a minimum of 40 man-hours to assemble the two-bedroomed houses complete with plumbing and heating. Sometimes, prisoners of war who were still being held in the country were used to help in the construction of the concrete slabs on which the sections of the bungalows were erected. The prefab could be completed very quickly once the sections were delivered to site. Unlike traditional houses, they had a fully fitted kitchen and bathroom built in. The construction of these new quick-build houses seemed like part of the solution to the housing crisis at the time. However, as we will see, 
They were later to cause major problems for tenants and the councils across the country. In a decade after 1945, 1.5 million homes had been completed and some of the demand for housing had been alleviated. The percentage of people renting from the local authorities had risen to over a quarter of the population, from 10% in 1938 to 26% in 1961. After the war, brutalist architecture arrived in Britain. Concrete was everywhere, and the skylines were changed forever as high-rise housing sprung up all over the country. Buildings such as the Barbican were created in London, Glasgow's Easter House estate was built and new towns such as Stevenage and Livingston popped up. Again, this destroyed old communities but brought new ones together. Council housing, 1950 to 1960. 900,000 slums were cleared in 1950 and 1960. Two and a half million people were rehoused. Large estates of council houses were built on the edge of towns and cities. However, facilities were poor on these housing estates and many suffered from vandalism and violent crime. High-rise tower blocks were built in inner-city areas to house the people who had lived in the slum housing. Many people found it difficult to live in high-rise tower blocks and many have been demolished after only a few years. Private ownership of housing increased after 1945. Higher wages meant that people could now afford to buy their own homes. Mortgages were easier to arrange. The Conservative government under Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s encouraged local councils to sell off their council homes to tenants who wanted to buy them. By 1984, half of the homes in Britain were owned privately, telling us that the homes that were built originally as affordable houses were then sold off to voters in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. The problem with this is that there was no longer any low-cost housing stocks to sell off for a quick fix because Maggie had neglected to put in place replacements. In the UK, we are still feeling that effect today. There is no question that we have a housing crisis, not only in the UK, but all over the world. We have a lot of houses, especially in my area, that are built as uh, affordable homes. These are not affordable. What's happening is a lot of people in the big cities are selling smaller properties and they're able to come out into the countryside um, and purchase properties, therefore making it impossible for people who were brought up in an area. This is not new. This has been going on forever. It's very rare that you'll actually find an original London-based family still living in London. A lot of people have moved away. But I really hope that the housing crisis gets sorted out soon. But that's just a personal opinion. I want to end the show by playing you a clip from a BBC News reel of the 1955 Birmingham slum clearances. It's really interesting to listen to um, from a perspective of somebody who was moving into a new property and leaving a slum. Matthews, you are a member of the Housing Department of Birmingham, and it's your job to look after the interests of tenants in this part of the city. Now, what happens to a family like Mrs. Bolger's that has to move from her home because of slum clearance? We try to warn them the previous year that their houses are due for demolition, 
They're nearer the time we come and take particulars of their family, of the rent they can pay, the sort of district they like to go to. And then we do our very best to find them accommodation that will be suitable, where they will be happy. Uh, do most people cooperate with you, even the cat? Yes. Well, on the whole, people accept the fact that they've got to move. Sometimes there are difficulties when we can't give them just exactly what they want. When you find people a new home, how long do you give them to make up their minds? We usually let them have the keys for 24 hours so that both husbands and wives can go to view. And what happens if they don't like the first house you show them? We then make them a second offer, possibly even a third. Would it be possible to give them a choice of two homes at once in the first place? Well, that, I think, does raise some administrative difficulties. Possibly you ought to take that up with Mr. Macy, the housing manager. Mr. Macy, you are the City of Birmingham housing manager. That's right. Ms. Matthews has told me what happens to a family who have been because of slum clearance. But can you tell me why you offer them only one house instead of two in the first instance? Well, we already know a great deal about their uh, choice of future housing because we've been discussing it with them for several months. And uh, over here we've got 100,000 houses managed by my department so that we, we've an infinite variety of alternative accommodation to offer to them, <laughs> from very old houses to the very latest modern flat. And the other point about it is that, that if I get a new block handed over with 30 flats in today, tomorrow 30 people can be viewing uh, their new accommodation. But if I were to give each of them two keys, only 15 families could view, and that, I'm afraid, would slow our work down very considerably. One must admire the drive and enthusiasm of the housing department, but in a vast organization like that, is there any danger of it becoming an inhuman juggernaut? Yes, we, we are well aware of this danger in all big organizations, and uh, probably the, the best safeguard against it is a, a, a well-trained staff of housing visitors who take a really keen interest in their job and in the families with whom they're dealing. That's very interesting, Mr. Macy. Now, do you go back after the tenants have moved and study their needs so that you can record them for future building purposes? Oh, yes, that's a process that's going on all the time. Uh, people working on the estates pick up information about tenants' likes and dislikes, uh, gadgets that work and don't work, and uh, we have the very closest liaison with the city architect and Sir Herbert Manzoni. I meet them two or three times a week so that we are always passing this information on to them. Manzoni, you are city engineer and surveyor, and you're responsible for redevelopment and replanning in the city. Yes, that is so. Now, what was the size of Birmingham's housing problem after the, after the war? Well, we lost 20,000 houses in the whole of the city due to bombing. But that wasn't the most important problem. The real problem was the problem of derelict houses, obsolescence, houses that had passed beyond their, uh, their uh, useful life and uh, they're mostly concentrated in the centre of the city. And what did the city do about this problem? Well, the city decided to deal with it in a very comprehensive manner. They, uh, they decided to buy the whole of the areas you see there, amounting to about 1,400 acres. And they got permission to do that under the Act of 1944, which was known as the Blitz and Blight Act. The Blight part is the interesting one because these are derelict areas of slums long past the standard. And they decided to pull them all down and rebuild in their place what amounts to five small towns within the city area. Uh, this one at the bottom, Bath Row, is uh, one which is developed 
fairly well up to the present time and where um, Mrs. Bolton and her family are moving to. What is the broad pattern for completing the redevelopment? Well, there are more slums in the central areas than you see there. Uh, those black patches on the map um, show where about 25,000 more houses of a slum character are, are being bought by the city at the present time. And they will be redeveloped in the same manner as the, uh, the five areas we were talking about. And how does this fit in with the whole of the city's plan? Well, there is a plan for the whole city, and all the outer areas were built between the wars under planning schemes. Uh, we're now dealing with the centre and all the amenities which were introduced into the outer areas, the roads and open spaces, will be extended into the centre. That shows a pattern of the parkways, the green parkways which were provided in the planning of the outer area, and you'll see that they're extended into the central areas. When that is completed in years to come, it'll be possible for people to walk about the city on grass uh, without having to walk along the roads. And I think that's a very desirable object. Yes. Sir Herbert, this is a tremendous and exciting enterprise. Are people enthusiastic about it? Well, certainly the city council is enthusiastic and uh, people who understand the scheme are also very enthusiastic. Of course, it's difficult for those who are being disturbed, but uh, usually we find that when they get into their new environment or the new homes, they do get enthusiastic about the scheme. I think all of us realize that the important thing here is that it's a human problem. Uh, it isn't the bricks and mortar that matter, it's the people. <laughs>